please uh, turn your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 2, first book in the Bible. We're going through the Gospel of Luke, and we've come to Luke chapter 16, verse 18. And as you turn in your Bibles to Genesis 2, I'm just going to read Luke 16, 18, and then we'll stand and read Genesis 2, uh, verses 15 and following in, in just a, a moment. But in Luke 16, we've, we've gone through the, the first part of the chapter, and we come to verse 18. And verse 18 says, Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. And though it's a very hard verse to understand, and a very hard verse at least to apply, and especially it's a, a verse that cuts against the culture in which we live, a, a culture that uh, allows divorce in so many different circumstances and in some cases even celebrates and rejoices in divorce. And, and it's a, a, a verse that I believe is going to challenge us in the coming weeks. But this morning, we're going to spend our time talking about God's foundation for marriage that we see in Genesis chapter 2. And if you're joining us for the first time this morning, I know this, that many people have been praying for our time together this morning, praying for me as I communicate the word, praying for our hearts as we receive some hard truths from God's word, some joyful but hard truths from God's word. And so I, I trust that we're encouraged this week and the coming two weeks as we begin to unpack what God's word says about marriage and deviations from God's plan for marriages, and then specifically the issue of divorce, which we'll look at uh, in two weeks, Lord willing. So if you would stand with me in honor of God as we read his word here in Genesis chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 15, and we'll read through verse 25. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat from the day that you eat it eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam... There was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. You may be seated. May God encourage us through the reading of his word, the study of his word this morning. And let's pray that God would continue to bless our time. And Father, we thank you for marriage. We thank you for this institution that you have given uh, to us. We pray that we would rightly understand it and rightly apply it in our lives. We, we pray for those uh, whose marriages are, are, are in trouble. We pray for those who are, are uh, mourning as they, they think about the difficult circumstances in, in their lives. We pray for the life of our church as we apply these truths. We pray for our church this week with vacation Bible camps. We pray for the the children that, who will be there. We pray for the workers. We pray for the families who are represented. We pray that the good news of your son Jesus would be clearly proclaimed, would be understood, that children would enter into a relationship with you. And we pray that through your gospel message, you would affect families, as we're talking about this morning. We pray all this in your son Jesus' name, for your glory. Amen. One of my great privileges as a pastor is to be able to view marriages at, at different stages and along the different stages to be able to, to come alongside and, and encourage and, and support and, and celebrate marriage. For example, I get to know couples before 
they're even engaged. I get to spend time with them. I get to hear about talking to a guy about this, this girl that he's really interested in. And, and then whenever they get engaged, I get the opportunity to, to, to talk with them about, about marriage. And I, I get to take these two people who, who know nothing about life and marriage and, and then turn them into people who know almost nothing about life and, and marriage like the rest of us. And, and I, I get to see the joy of, of that, that relationship continuing to blossom. And then uh, this, this is, is mind-blowing to me still, but I get to, to stand with this couple before their friends and family, and, and I get to re- share with them the marriage vow that they repeat as, as they go from being single to being married. And, and I, get to, I, get, I have the best view in the entire church. I have a better view than their parents. I have a better view than they do. I get to stand there and watch both of them as they go from being single to being married based on the, the covenant they make between themselves and God. It's, it's an amazing experience. It's one that's very humbling. And then I, I get to watch marriages as they go beyond that, that marriage vow and as they begin to, to realize how little they know and, and they get to live life and they, they have these children and I get to be involved in child dedications and parent dedications and I get to see life in marriages and, and sometimes I, I even have the privilege of watching a marriage come to a close as one spouse goes to be with the Lord. And, and even in that time, as, as tragic and as sad as it is, there's also a, a, a profound beauty, isn't there, in, in seeing a spouse grieve someone whom they've loved so deeply. And, and so I, I say this this morning to tell you, I love marriage. I love marriage. I love my marriage the most. I love your marriages very deeply. He said, well, Daniel, my marriage, I mean, my marriage is, is not a great marriage. My marriage is, is full of, of strife. My marriage is full of, is, is, consists of two people who aren't walking with the Lord, or at least one person who's not walking with the Lord. My marriage doesn't, I love the potential in your marriage. I love the picture that even your marriage in its fallen state shows of the relationship between Christ and his church. I love your healthy marriages. You say, wait a minute, Daniel, I'm not even married. I'm I'm single. I love your future marriage. I love your, you say, Daniel, I'm never going to get married. I love your future, future marriage as part of Christ's church, his bride, getting, getting in union with Christ forever. I love marriage. That's why I love Luke 16, verse 18. Luke 16, verse 18 describes a reality that, that exists in our world, the reality of divorce. And in Luke 16, 18, we see how much God loves marriage and how seriously God takes the marriage vow. In verse 18, Jesus says, Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Those are very strong words. We're going to describe uh, what God means there, and we're going to talk about some of the, the realities of divorce in the coming weeks. But what I want you to understand as you look at those verses this morning is they illustrate how seriously God takes marriage. And you and I live in a culture, not just, you know, the secular culture out there. We live in a church culture that doesn't understand marriage, that doesn't have a very solid definition of what marriage is. And in a culture that doesn't understand what marriage is, you lead to some deviations from what God's plan for marriage is. Reading a book right now. Uh, by C.S. Lewis. It's a, a science fiction book called That Hideous Strength. And in this, this book, there's these, you know, there's the, the sci-fi stuff. There's these forces of good and evil that are kind of clashing with one another in this galactic struggle. But there's also, at, at the very fundamental level of the story, it's a story about a marriage and about a relationship between a, a husband named Mark and the wife named Jane. And, and even though there's these this, this big sci-fi story going on around them, the, the story is fundamentally, I believe, about a marriage relationship and the war within this marriage. There's this scene in the story that I want to read to you. There's, there's this scene, uh, let me set it up a little bit. Jane, the wife, has, has gone and talked to this organization that she wants to be a part of, and there's this, this character named the director, and the director is telling Jane that she can't participate 
in this, this organization. And he says the, the higher-ups in him have given him this directive because of the state of her marriage. Now, Mark and Jane both represent kind of the, the contemporary marriage. Mark is this man who's removed from his wife. He refuses to, to love her sacrificially. Jane refuses any attempts to define her in relationship to her husband. She's her own person and refuses any attempts to people, for people to describe her in, in reference to who her husband is. And listen to what she says as she's told that she can't be a part of this organization because of her relationship with her husband. She says, would it make no difference what a marriage was actually like, whether it was a success, whether the woman loved her husband? Jane had not exactly intended to say this, much less to say it in the cheaply pathetic tone which it's now seemed to her she had used. Hating herself and fearing the director's silence, she added, but I suppose you will say I oughtn't to have told you that. My dear child, said the director, you have been telling me that ever since your husband was first mentioned. Well, does it make no difference, she says? I suppose, said the director, it would depend on how he lost your love. Follows her some descriptions of how she comes to realize that her husband has lost her love through no fault of his own, and she says this, it was not his fault, she said at last, I suppose our marriage was just a mistake. The director said nothing. What would you, said Jane, what would the people you're talking of say about a case like mine? I will tell you if you really want to know, said the director. Please, said Jane. They would say, he answered, that you did not fail in obedience through lack of love, but have lost love because you never attempted obedience. You see the difference? He says, I would tell you, you didn't fail to obey because you didn't have enough love. You didn't fail to obey what marriage should look like because you just didn't have enough love. You lacked love because you failed in obedience. And I believe that many of us are failing in our marriages because we're not being obedient to God and making the commitment of love that God has called us to make. As marriages are described sometimes in the church, they're described not with the beauty of marriage as it's intended to be in Genesis 2. They're described more in terms of the, the tragic fallen state that we see in Genesis chapter 3. And so what I want to do this morning is call us to obedience. To call us to obedience in terms of what God said marriage is to be and what is to look like. And I hope that this is a very relevant message. I believe it's a very relevant message for you wherever you find yourself this morning in terms of life. Now, some of you are kids, and uh, you know, you're, you're kids, you're young. The idea of marrying a boy or a girl sounds very disgusting to you. Those are, those are the mortal enemies, right? Well, uh, I, what I hope you gain from this morning, kids, is an understanding of, look, this is what marriage is supposed to be like, and someday it's going to change, and, uh, you know, boys won't be as disgusting anymore, okay? And, and, and they won't be. They will grow up too. And, uh, and so you'll understand, look, this is what God's word says about marriage. And also, kids, know this. Uh, mom and dad need your prayers. People that you know who are in marriage relationships need you, need you to pray for them. You need to know how to pray that your mom and dad would be obedient to what God has called them to be, right? Some of you are, are single, some of you are single, and, and uh, maybe some t sometimes you even struggle with this er area of marriage. You're saying, boy, I, I, I want to be married, or I don't want to be married, and, and this is where God has is, is placed me right now, and, and, I, and I'm struggling with that. And so I hope this is encouraging to you as you think about how God would call you to be obedient, not just in the area of marriage, but in the area of, area of sexuality as well. And some of you are in, in marriages right now, and, and things are good or things are bad, and I hope that you're encouraged this morning as you think about what God has called you to. Some of you have been through very difficult marriages. Some of you are, are beyond marriage, either through death or divorce. And, and God's word of encouragement to you is that you can be obedient in these areas as well. Some of you can forget what lies behind and press on to what lies ahead. I hope that all of us are encouraged as we look at God's word together this morning and see what his word says about marriage. Okay? So let's look at Genesis 2. Go ahead and turn there. And this is a passage that 
Jesus will turn to when he's trying to describe what marriage is supposed to be. Paul will turn to this passage when he's trying to give us a theology of what marriage is supposed to be. And so it's a passage that we turn to this morning as well. And here are three things that I want us to talk about as we talk about God's design for marriage and sexuality. So we kind of lay a foundation for the weeks ahead. And the first thing that I want us to understand is this. Marriage was designed by God. Number one, marriage was designed by God. And there's four things in this passage that I want to kind of draw your attention to about God's design, okay? So marriage was designed by God. Number one, he designed marriage for companionship. Marriage was designed by God. And number one, he designed marriage for companionship. Now, as we go through chapter one, you, you see that God does this this creative work, creating the universe and creating the, the world and creating this, this special place for humans to exist. And what you see after he does each area of creation, he looks at it and the text tells us that he, he saw that it was good. So day one, he looks at what he created, good. Day three, good. Day four, good. Day five, good. Day six, it's good. And then as you come to the very end of chapter one, It says that God looks, in verse 31, he looks over everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And so there's this pattern. He creates, it's good. He creates, it's good. And good there means it's perfect, it's complete, it's what he intends for it to be. And so at the end of Genesis 1, everything is good. And then we come to Genesis 2, and Genesis 2 describes more exactly the creation of man and woman and God's intent in designing man and woman. And we come to verse 15, and, and God takes man, and he puts him in the Garden of Eden. He gives him this task, this ministry to work the garden, to keep it. And God commanded the man, saying, you can eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. The day you eat of it, you'll surely die. And so God takes man, places him in the garden, says, here's what you should do, here's what you shouldn't do. And then we come to verse 18. And for the first time, this pattern of the created realm being complete is broken. It says this, Then the Lord God said, It is not good. So, good, 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 good. He looks at this situation and says, Not good. Not that he had made a mistake, but things weren't complete. Things hadn't reached the level of perfection for which God had designed them. And the problem, if you want to call it a problem, the, the lack of the area of lack of completion is the absence of a companion. I, he says, in verse 18, it's not good that the man should be alone, that he lacks a companion. I will make a helper fit for him. That word fit means corresponding to, opposite of him. I'm going to make a, a companion for the man. Now, marriage, we see here, was a result of God recognizing that there was need for companionship. For some of you, this may be kind of a a little bit of a radical idea. In our culture today, sometimes we seek companionship not in our spouse, but in our friends. We say, okay, well, I have this marriage, and and yeah, we're we're, we're friends and stuff, but I'm going to find my companionship with, with my my friends, my sister, or my parents, or the guys when we hang out. And, and what we see here is that God designed marriage to be that sphere in which our companionship needs are, are ultimately met, where our primary companionship exists. So he designed marriage for companionship. The ultimate purpose of marriage was not procreation. The ultimate purpose of marriage, the problem that it solved, was a lack of companionship, and companionship is met in that marital relationship. So what else do we see about God's design? Well, first of all, he designed marriage for companionship. A second thing we see about marriage, he designed genders. He designed, chapter 1 says he made them male and female. Uh, Chapter 2 says, uh, in verse verse 18, I'm going to make a a helper fit for him, uh, corresponding to him. As we go through the rest of this chapter, we see that there's a, a distinction in gender between the the man and the woman. He, he makes the woman in a way that's different from the way that he made the man. The man looks at the woman. He gets excited about this new creation that God has created and recognizes that there's a difference in gender between himself and the woman. 
Now, why is this so important? Well, in our culture today, some people will say this. Some people who who'd identify themselves as Christians would say this. Okay, um, I agree that the purpose of marriage is companionship. The, the goal of this marriage is this, this one flesh relationship. But, some people will say, why must it be between a, a man and a woman? Why can't you have two people that are of the, the same gender entering into this relationship and, and having companionship? After all, can't the same goals be met through, through that relationship as through the relationship between a, a man and a woman? If, if there's mutual love and respect and, and, a, and a warm environment, why can't we say it's, it's the same as what exists in a traditional marital relationship? Well, what we see is, first of all, God designed men and women differently to come together in the marriage relationship. It's different from his design. Now, as we go through Scripture, we see some of the reasons that he designed men and women differently. This last week, I was thinking about the story Charlotte's Web. Remember the story Charlotte's Web about this spider who, who saves a pig's life? I was thinking about it because I squished a spider, and I felt, felt a little guilty. But uh, there's this, this story in, in Charlotte's Web. It's this beautiful story. And uh, from, from page one, there's, there's foreshadowing. There's this, this picture that begins to be painted of, of death and life. And the very first page of the book, Charlotte's Web, the pig's life is in danger. Wilbur's life is in danger. And the story becomes, how is Wilbur's life going to be saved? And, and Charlotte tells Wilbur, she says, uh, you will not die. I'm going to help you. And, 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 and this, this beautiful friendship develops. And at, you know, at the end of the story, uh, spoiler alert, um, the, the spider ultimately sacrifices her life in some ways for, for this pig. And, and before she does that, there's this beautiful, there's this beautiful line that she says, these, these words that she says that kind of culminate the story. She says to Wilbur the pig, you have been my friend. That in itself is a tremendous thing. I wove my webs for you because I like you. After all, what's a life anyway? We're born, we live a little while, and then we die. A spider's life can't help being something of a mess with all this trapping and eating flies. By helping you, perhaps, I was trying to lift up my life a little. Heaven knows anyone's life can stand a little of that. So as you come to the conclusion of the story, there's, there's just that beautiful speech that ties this friendship and sacrifice and the preservation of life for Wilbur all together in this, this beautiful package. And it's, and it's all the more beautiful because there's been this foreshadowing and these themes woven throughout the story. God is a great storyteller. And this distinction in gender that happens in Genesis chapter 1, he creates them male and female, then he brings them together in this marriage relationship in Genesis chapter 2. And, and we see the distortions in this relationship that exist as, as people engage in immorality throughout the book of Genesis and beyond. And we see God's created intention for, for marriage distorted. And we see separation. And we see all the, 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 the attempts of people to achieve oneness in different ways. And then we come to Ephesians 5 and we see the gospel. And we see the gospel brings men and women back into this relationship. And Paul describes it as this profound mystery. He says it, it, the, the distinctions and roles and men and women coming together and these different, uh, different genders coming together in this one flesh relationship. He says it's a mystery, but it's speaking to Christ and the church. And then in Revelation 19, in Revelation 19, we'll look at this uh, toward the end of our time together this morning. There's this beautiful wedding ceremony where Christ is joined in eternity with his church. Marriage is designed by God. He designs it for companionship, and he created different genders, a man and a woman, to come together to point to the eternal union between Christ and and his church. And you know what the beautiful thing is? For thousands and thousands of years of human history, through God's common grace, people have understood that there's something special about a man and a woman coming together to live in a committed relationship to raise a family or, or, or to be together for companionship, to, to be married. Throughout all human history and in all the different cultures that you can name, this 
this idea that marriage is this union between one man and, and one woman or has been ingrained, and there have been deviations from that, but, but it's existed in cultures throughout human history. And now, for the first time, beginning really in the year 2000, 2001, for the first time, there have been cultures that have redefined marriage, the special relationship existing not just between a man and a woman, but saying that other, that same, so-called same-sex marriage can exist. It's a sad thing. It's a sad thing because God has designed marriage in a way that points to this eternal union between himself and the church. As we deviate from that design, we fail to see that picture. So God designed marriage. He designed it for companionship. He designed genders. A third thing we see is that he designed roles. He designed roles, uh, different responsibilities for the man and the woman in this marriage relationship. Again, verse 18, he, he says, I'm going to make a, a helper fit for him. And sometimes we see that word helper and we get a really wrong idea, okay? Sometimes we think, okay, uh, God designed a, a helper for the man. Therefore, uh, the man is supposed to be the one doing all the work and the woman's supposed to help him out. However he decides she should help, that's her job, okay? And some people live married lives that way. That's not the idea of the word helper that, that uh, God is, is using here. The word helper means a, a partner in this sense. It's a word that God uses to describe himself in relationship to Israel sometimes. He says, I'm Israel's helper. I'm, I'm the one who comes alongside them and, and assists them for, for their benefit and, and my glory, and the idea here of a helper fit for him, a partner that's able to, to partner with this, this husband to do the things that God has called the husband to do, that God has called here Adam to do. In our culture today, in, in the evangelical church culture of today, there are several different understandings of how men and women relate to one another in marriage. One view is called the egalitarian view. That's everybody's the same. There's no distinction in roles. The, the husband doesn't have a responsibility for leadership. The, the wife doesn't have a responsibility to, to submit to her husband. And so that's, that's the egalitarian view. Everybody's the same, no distinction. We're kind of these amorphous creatures that have no distinctions of gender, right? Another view is, is to say kind of like a, a patriarchal view. You know, the, the husband is, is the head of the wife, and then they define that in some very... Um, I believe sometimes in very unbiblical ways that the leadership of the husband morphs into this, this weird authoritarian dictatorship relationship in which, you know, whatever the husband says, you know, his, you know, he's the king of the castle and everybody, the kids, everybody should do exactly what he says. Then there's this view, and, and this would be the viewpoint that I would hold to, that, that's called complementarianism. It believes, complementarianism believes that the husband and wife have different roles that, that complement one another cause each to be exactly what God has designed them to be. Here's the problem with my view. <laughs> and there's actually a blogger who wrote on this, this recently who who's falls in the egalitarian view, and, and she said, you know, the problem with complementarianism is it doesn't stay complementarianism. It either devolves into this weird patriarchy thing, or it devolves into egalitarianism. So some of us may say, yeah, I'm complementarianism, but as you look at our marriage relationships, there's, there's really no distinction between the husband and the wife. Let me encourage you with this. So often, as, as husbands and wives, as we're trying to think about what we're supposed to do and what the, it's supposed to look like, we kind of look to the world around us. And so husbands, we go, okay, I'm supposed to be a leader, all right? I'm supposed to lead my wife. Uh, okay, CEOs are leaders. I'm going to look at what a CEO does. And my wife is labor, you know, and so I'm going to interact with her like a, a CEO would interact with the unions, okay? Or, or uh, I, I'm going a, I'm to a, I'm a look at leaders. So what does a coach do? A coach does drills. And I, okay, honey, we're going to do some Bible drills and stuff. And so we look to the world around us to get our ideas of what roles should be like. Let me suggest a different model <laughs> for the sanity of our wives, the sanity of our children, and for the joy and the glory of, of, of husbands, let me suggest to you what we see as a model in the Trinity. In the Trinity, the relationship between God the Father and, and God the Son. In the Trinity, we see the submission of God the Son to God the Father. 
But it's not a, a harsh submission. It's not a submission in which the son resents the father, or the father ex- ex- does his authority to the detriment of the son. The son is fully God. He has all the glory of the father, and his glory is, is, is magnified in his submission to the leadership of the father. Here's what Bruce Ware, who wrote a book on the Trinity, says. He says, how remarkable that within the Godhead, not only is authority eternally exercised, but submission marks the relationship of the son to the father from eternity past to eternity future. How astonishing to realize that it is just as godlike to submit gladfully and joyfully to the rightful authority as it is godlike to exercise legitimate rightful authority. Our tendency is to think of God as the one who has absolute authority, and of course that's true. But less known and little understood is the alternate truth that in God, in God, eternal submission to authority is also exercised. Isn't that remarkable to think about? That not only does God eternally exercise authority, but God eternally submits to himself as God the Son submits to God the Father. That's mind-blowing, of course, but I would encourage you to, to look at the relationship between God the Father and God the Son, or, or God the Son and God the Holy Spirit as a model for submission, not our corporate model, or the model between Christ and his church, and not the secular models of leadership that we have today. So marriage was designed by God. He designed it for companionship. He designed genders. He, did, he designed roles. And then finally, he designed work for couples to do. He tells the man and the woman that they're to engage in this, this ministry. He gives the ministry to the man in, in verse 15. And the lack of companionship, the lack of a helper fit for him is answered in the marriage relationship. And Eve doesn't come along so that she can kind of help Adam water the garden better or something. She comes so that Adam can do the ministry that God has called him to do more joyfully and more completely. Here's the implication of these things. You and I do not have the right to redefine the purpose of marriage or redesign it in conformity with what our hearts desire marriage to be in their natural state. Your goal in getting married isn't to have someone meet all your needs. Your goal in getting married isn't to have someone compliment you a whole bunch. And as you think about a future spouse, your goal in having a future spouse should be I want someone who's going to come alongside me and help me do the work that God has called me to do. Your goal isn't to find the best-looking guy, the best-looking gal, the smartest guy, the smartest gal. Thank goodness Whitney didn't have those goals whenever she was looking for a husband, right? But who is going to be able to come alongside and help me do the things that God has called me to do? God designed marriage. That's foundational for anything we say beyond this. Second thing that I want us to think about this morning, marriage not only was designed by God, but, but marriage creates a unique relationship. I think sometimes we forget how unique this marriage relationship is. Marriage creates a unique relationship. It's, it's unique in several ways. Number one, I'm going to, again, four things that are unique about our marriage. Number one, it's unique in that it changes our old relationships. As we go through and we see this, this formation of, of, of Eve, there's this new created uh, woman, and he brings her to the man, and there's this new relationship that, that uh, comes about. And then we come to verse 24, and Moses kind of sums up the theological truths that are presented in this narrative, and he says, Therefore, a, a man shall leave his father and his mother. It changes all other relationships whenever a person enters into a marriage relationship. And, and at that time in the wedding ceremony when the husband and wife make their marriage vows to one another, their relationship with mom and dad changes. Their relationship with all the, the, their uh, bridesmaids and the groomsmen changes. Those, those friendships are now all, no longer friendships between the, the groomsmen and the groom. They're now 
friendships between the groomsmen and this new couple. They become this, this, this one relationship now. Relationships with every other person change. However, the relationship between a husband and wife, once they've entered into a marriage, it, it, it stays permanent. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But marriage is unique in that it changes old relationships. That's why there's this, this public ceremony that we undertake together. A few years ago, I've mentioned this story before, but a few years ago I was in Texas performing a, a wedding for one of my friends, and we were getting ready to, to go into the church. We are right, th- I mean, I'm right there, I'm about to push open the doors, uh, my, my friend is there, the groomsmen are all there, the, everyone's seated, we, I mean, it is go time. And I look over at my friend, and, and I ask him, I say, hey, just so I don't forget, after the ceremony, uh, where's the marriage license? He said, oh, yeah, I'm going to get that after we get back from the honeymoon. You know, what? We, we put a stop to the wedding. <laughs> we said, oh, we got to stop this thing. We got to stop this thing. And, and so we, we stopped, and we, we talked, and we figured out. Uh, fortunately, we were in the state of Texas, and in Texas, if you stand up in front of a group of people and you say, we're hitched, you're married, or they can shoot you with a gun or something. And so, uh, <laughs> it, I mean, we're, we're good, but I, I told them, I said, I, you know, I've, I've told every other couple since, and I've said, look, if you do not have a marriage license before you, we go into the, the marriage, before we go into the rehearsal, I'm not performing the ceremony, right? Marriage is unique. It, it changes all of the relationships, and that's one of the reasons that the marriage relationship is, is proclaimed in such a, a public way, so that everyone knows this is a, a new relationship. You now interact with this couple as a husband and wife. So it's unique in that it, it's a unique relationship and that it changes all other relationships. It's also unique in, its, in that it is permanent. It's unique in that it's permanent. Uh, other relationships are going to ebb and flow. They're going to change. Even your relationship with parents or brothers or sisters or, or cousins are going to change. But the marriage relationship, the marriage relationship stays permanent. In fact, it's interesting. A passage that's parallel to the passage in Luke that we're looking at is, is Matthew 19. In Matthew 19, Jesus is, is teaching these things, and some Pharisees come to him and say, look, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and, and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? And so as they ask about Jesus, Jesus, Jesus about divorce, he, he points them back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and says, look, this is, this is a permanent relationship. They're no longer two, he says in verse 6, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And then they ask him about the exception of divorce. And he says, well, divorce existed, verse 8, because of your hardness of heart. Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and and marries another commits adultery. These are, again, as we mentioned at the beginning of our time, these are very hard words. In our culture, they're words that sound very strange to us. But God has created the marriage relationship to be a permanent, one-flesh relationship. And I hope I don't sound... um, I hope this doesn't sound too self-serving as I say this. But there's something that I, I believe the church needs to understand. Th- this needs to be said. And again, if, if you weren't here last week, uh, please hear all that I say in, in the context of love, and, and we, we care about you, and, and we want good things to happen to you. It's not just the pastor's responsibility to hold this standard to my own life or your life. It's not just the elders' responsibility to hold this standard to people's lives and their own lives. Each of us have the responsibility to call people to remember and remain committed to the permanence of marriage. And what happens in our culture, our church culture, so often is that a person or two people decide this marriage is over Like James said at the beginning, it was just a mistake. It was just a mistake. 
That happens again and again and again in our church cultures. People come to the conclusion this marriage was a mistake. For whatever reason, it can't remain permanent, and they leave it. And their believing brothers and sisters in Christ say nothing. And the divorce comes through, and you begin to interact with them just like you did before. They get remarried, and you, begin to, you continue to interact with them like nothing has changed. Now, again, we must understand as we interact with people who are going through terrible, terrible situations, we do so with love, we do so with graciousness. We understand that each situation is unique, and there are going to be different things that different people need based upon what's causing this marriage to collapse around them. But brothers and sisters, we must, must, must remain committed to the permanence of marriage. It's not just my job to call people to that. It's your job as brothers and sisters in Christ to call people to understand that marriage is unique and that it is a permanent relationship. That doesn't mean you get out of it when you fall out of love, so-called. It doesn't mean that whenever things are tough or things are uncomfortable or your, your spouse is a jerk, that marriage is suddenly not permanent. It means that things are hard. It means that you need God's grace. It means that you need friends and family to come alongside you. It means that you may need someone to, to intervene in some very difficult situations, but marriage is a permanent relationship that God has called you to persevere. And yes, we'll talk about times when a spouse abandons you in the coming weeks. We'll talk about immorality and divorce. We'll talk about all those things, but the main thing that you need to understand is that marriage is supposed to be a permanent relationship, and whenever it's not a permanent relationship, sin has entered the picture in an ugly way that fails to bring God the glory he deserves in your marriage. I don't know if I can say this enough. Marriage is supposed to be permanent. It's unique in that way. Third thing about marriage that's, that's unique and how it creates a unique relationship. Uh, the marriage relationship is unique in that it is a, a sexual relationship. The marriage is unique in that it is a, a sexual relationship. Indeed, it is only in the context of marriage that our sexuality is, is to be expressed in, a, in, this, in this physical way says in verse, as we, as we look at the end of, of Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24, it says that they not only leave their father and mother, they, they hold fast to one another, and that, that's that, the permanence there, and then they, be, they become one flesh. There's this one flesh relationship that's a sexual relationship. Hebrews tells us that this is what marriage is designed to be, that sexuality is only to be expressed in the marriage relationship Hebrews 13, 4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Uh, Proverbs 5, 18 celebrates the, the sexual relationship between a, a husband and, and a wife. It says, uh, Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. In that marriage relationship, a husband and wife are to be engaged in a sexual relationship, and it's only in the marriage relationship that the sexuality is to exist and be expressed. 1 Corinthians 7, uh, Paul commands husbands and wives to remain in this sexual relationship. Don't deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer and then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So this marriage relationship is really unique. It's only within this marriage relationship that, that you're to engage in, in sexual activity. And that's what God calls you to do. That's where God calls you to express and enjoy sexuality. Now, a couple things about this. First of all, I think we need to understand and acknowledge that there's not a single person who uh, doesn't sin in this area in some way, either through their thoughts. We see that in Matthew chapter 5, or their wrong attitudes about sex, or their wrong uh, activities, immorality. I mean, there's, there's no one who who is unaffected by the fall in any area, including this area, right? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6 that immorality is to have no 
part in our lives. He says every, verse 18 of 1 Corinthians 6, flee from sexual immorality. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And so as we think about the marriage relationship and, and where marriage is, is supposed to head toward and where sexuality is supposed to exist, it's within this marriage relationship. And Paul warns us, look, sexual morality is to have no place in the life of the believer. There's a lot, obviously, we could say here <laughs> as we think about immorality and, and sexuality. Just a couple encouraging words, perhaps. First of all, uh, for those of us, th- those of you who are younger, those of you who are, are single, um, understand this. God understands that sexuality doesn't just all of a sudden begin when you get, when you get married. It's not like completely asexual, Say I do, oh, suddenly I'm interested in sex. That's not how the human being is designed. It's not how God has designed us in his wisdom. But what we do see in Scripture is that even the single person, the young man or the young woman who's single, has a unique opportunity to glorify God in the area of sexuality by fleeing sexual immorality by pursuing God's design for marriage, by worshiping God in that area. God's design allows the young person, even who's not in the marriage relationship, to worship God in this area of their life. Also, you know, I, I think this is encouraging for husbands and wives as, as they think about, look, this is, this is where God has designed me to, to exhibit this area of, of who I am, and, and it's God, God's gift. And my, my goal is to pursue beyond my fallen nature and, and pursue oneness in, in this area of my life. Here's actually a good question, I think, for young people to think about. Think about a, a, a married person in the church. Think, think about uh, me as, as the pastor, of the, the, the teaching pastor. And I'm in my mid-30s. I'm uh, very, very, very happily married to my wife. We have four beautiful children. Now, uh, think about how you believe that I should interact with other women in the church or with, with single gals in the church. There should be friendship, uh, but there should be respect. There should be very much a, a, a sister relationship, right? And let me suggest to you, young people, single people, that your relationship with other single people in the church shouldn't be that different in many ways as you think about how to treat one another with respect and honor. 1 Thessalonians 4 says, This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual morality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and, listen to this, and wrong his brother in this matter. It's possible, when you, it, it, in fact, it's definitely whenever you engage in sexual morality, you're wronging your brother or sister in Christ. It says, the Lord is the avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. The marriage relationship is unique. It's unique that it changes old relationships. It's unique that it's permanent. It's unique that it's sexual. And finally, it's, it's unique. It's unique in that it creates oneness. This marriage relationship creates oneness in verse 24, the very end says, and they shall become one flesh. And it's not just a physical one flesh, not just the, the marital relations. It's also this, this spiritual oneness, that, this relational oneness that takes place between a husband and a wife. Indeed, as we think about the purpose of marriage, that God created it for companionship, we see that the goal of marriage what each of us should be striving for in our marriages, if we are married, is this oneness. This union as the husband sacrificially loves his wife, as the wife sacrificially submits to her husband, there should be a oneness that exists, a oneness that's strived for by God's grace. So marriage creates a unique relationship. Third thing, just look at this very quickly as we close. Marriage exists to glorify 
God. Marriage exists to glorify God. Ephesians chapter 5, Paul has been talking about the roles between the husband and wife. And he says, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The marriage relationship exists in order to provide a picture for people as a husband and wife come together in companionship. It, It causes people to understand God in a deeper way. And we come to Revelation chapter 19 that describes this future wedding that all of us who've placed our faith in Jesus Christ are going to participate in. And in verse 6 of 19, he says, John says, I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saint and the mar- saints and the marriage. And, and the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. These are the true words of God. If your marriage existed just just to bring you happiness, that would affect how you operate in your marriage. It would affect the decisions you made. It would affect whether or not your marriage was permanent. If your marriage existed just for you to make the other person happy in your marriage relationship, that would affect what you do, right? If you're single, it would affect your goals for marriage, your goals in pursuing a spouse. But let me tell you this. The goal of your marriage is not to make you happy. The goal of your marriage isn't even to make your spouse happy. The goal of your marriage is to serve as, as a, a proclamation of the glory of God. And even in a fallen marriage, as you pursue God's design for what he's called you to do, you glorify God and you point people who are lost, who do not know God, to understanding the relationship between Christ and his church, to proclaiming the good news that a person can enter into relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ alone. You proclaim to your brothers and sisters in Christ the beauty of the eternal union between the church and the church's groom, Jesus Christ. That's the foundation of marriage. And everything that deviates from that goal of marriage is to deviate from the design that the designer created. This week was an easier week. This week was an easier week as we paint the positive picture. Our challenge comes as we look at the deviations next week and the week following from God's design for marriage. Continue to pray for our church as we think through this. Continue to pray for the people you know and you love and pray that God would really keep our hearts soft to what he's calling us to do in life. And let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for marriage. And we pray that you continue to give us grace to be obedient to the difficult things you've called us to do. We thank you for the beauty of marriage and for the union we have with your son, Jesus Christ, through faith in him. We pray this in his name. Amen.